Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, it's the Friday News Roundup. I'm with CityCast Mallory Falk and Elizabeth Kama talking about all the stories we couldn't get enough of this week. It's Friday, January 27th. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. Mallory, did you have a phone when you were in school, and was it a distraction to you? I had a cell phone. This might age me a bit. I had one toward the very end of high school. It could make calls, and I could play that game Snake on it, which was a bit of a distraction. (laughs) But I don't ever actually remember having it in school. I think it was just like if I would go out on the weekends, it was a way, you know, if there was some kind of emergency, I could call my parents for a ride or something. What about you, Elizabeth? You're our our Gen Z. <laughs> Have you just always grown up with an iPhone? Yeah, I mean, I had an iPhone all throughout high school and middle school. I Were you able to have it like in, yeah. in class? I mean, teachers would like take it if it was a distraction and you'd have to come and collect it from the front office. But yeah, I had a phone. Did you have one, Morgan? I did. I had one, but kind of like, you know, same boat. It didn't really have, we didn't have internet. Um, Or the internet cost us a lot of money to get Uh on at that time. So like I texting mostly was the thing that like we were doing. Mm. So no internet and it was still a distraction. So (laughs) (laughs) there's a Pittsburgh public school that's having students turn their phones off and lock them away during the day. Obama Academy started using those uh, yonder pouches that, have you ever used those like at concerts or um, yeah, it shows. I had to use one uh, when I went to go see the John Mulaney show when he came to Pittsburgh. They had us like lock our phone away. I was thinking like maybe it's for when he does a special with those jokes. Yeah. So I didn't really, I wasn't that sad, although I, I did kind of want to take a picture of like me at the place to prove that I was there. But it's okay. Not everything didn't has to happen be happen if you didn't put it on the gram. Yeah. <laughs> you were never there. Yeah. I, I do feel like this a, a little bit of like anxiety when I have to like put my phone away in those things. But also, I guess it makes me a little bit more present. The pouches are locked by magnets and students get their phones back at the end of the day. Um, I found this story through our partner's public source. The reporting is by Terry and Bell. The principal at Obama, um, Yolanda Colbert, said that the data from the 2021-2022 school year involving students and their phone usage during the day was alarming. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not really a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 90% of students were not using their phone for education, but they're using it for you know social media, texting. Again, not a surprise. Um, <laughs> but there was also an increase in kids like experiencing, a- a- you know, anxiety and not mm-hmm. wanting to come to school because of like cyberbullying, you know, because they're constantly on mm-hmm. their phones and able to post things and able to see, you know, when people are, you know, cyberbullying is terrible. These stories always make me really grateful to have graduated in the early aughts before 
this stuff really existed. And I mean, we had MySpace and like there was MySpace drama happening then, but it wasn't like the most accessible on my phone. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I graduated before TikTok was a thing, but there was definitely cyberbullying <laughs> in like middle school through high school on yeah. social media apps. Um, but like how long has Obama been using the pouches? You know, is it working? Well, the principal said they got them on November 1st of last year and started using them almost immediately. The thing is, is that teachers like are already dealing with the stress that is our education system in this country, you know, Mm -hmm. but they're also Mm -hmm. competing to keep these students attention. You're right, because of things like TikTok, like and Instagram and Twitter, the way we take in and process information has changed. Technology has evolved and administrators, you know, said that that is reflected in how the students engage with them in the classroom. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I get that, you know, having a phone would be distracting. Just having that one game snake on my phone could get distracting (laughs) um, during class. But I don't know, is there an argument to be made that during emergencies, it's important for students to have phones on them? Yeah. So at Obama, you know, their process is that if a parent is trying to get in touch with them, they can be excused to the office to use their phone. If they're not feeling well, you know, and they go to the nurse, the nurse will assess them and decide, you know, if the student you know, needs to use their phone for that emergency. Mm-hmm. So it is like case by case. And it's also primarily up to the administrators. Yeah. I mean, I get that. But for me, I feel like Safety in schools can't be overlooked. I mean, even when I was in in high school, I was thinking a lot about, you know, mass shootings and like, who would I text or what would I do or how would I use my phone in that scenario? Um, Isn't it horrible that that's a concern that like maybe students need phones so that they can text? You know, I think we've seen after some of these school shootings messages, final messages kids send to their families. It's just, I don't know. It's just heartbreaking to think that that's like something that pops in people's minds when it comes to why they would need access to a cell phone in school. Mm -hmm. What about like parents and students? How do they feel about that policy? Because I feel like I would be like anxious. And I think that's really what uh, both sides were expressing. Some parents that talked to Tarion said uh, that You know, they understood the need for the policy, but that they weren't totally comfortable with having no access to their child or their child not having, you know, immediate access to them. And that's not just in, you know, God forbid, like that's not just in a a scenario where it is a a mass shooting. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, if you have a family emergency or, you know, if your child might have medical needs or something like that, we just, you know, we just haven't done anything about gun control in this country. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, and it is a, it's a constant and unfortunate reality. Um, and until something is done, these students feel anxious about not having, you know, access that they might need. And again, that's for whatever reason. And, and the parents seem to feel the same way. So it sounds like this isn't totally popular with parents or students. Not everyone is on board. Is the school considering any changes to the policy kind of based on those responses? Not at the moment. Principal Colbert said that Obama students 
43% of Obama students uh, of that student body is on the honor roll or high achieving. And, you know, she wants them to maintain that academic status. We've had conversations on this podcast about the test scores in public schools around Allegheny County, you know, since the pandemic because of, mm-hmm. you know, remote learning and just the mm-hmm. just the disruption in learning that they've had over the past couple of years. Um, so it, it, it does really seem like she wants to, the focus to continue to be on the education Honestly, at least until administrators can probably find a way to adjust their, you know, lessons and learning plans to uh, adopt to the way that, you know, kids take in information now, which is in very short, you know, video (laughs) increments. Got to make Sokotoa go viral. The show today is brought to you by an incredible local resource, AIDS Free Pittsburgh, and their pledge to end the HIV AIDS epidemic in Allegheny County by 2030. If that is a cause that is close to your heart, make sure you're around for their biggest event of the summer, the sixth annual Too Hot for July. It is a party, but it is also a chance to get confidential HIV and STI testing for free, plus info on the incredible preventative medicines we have now to keep yins happy, healthy, and feeling your most confident out on the town. So come on out to Allegheny Commons East Park on Thursday, May 30th. Yes, July is in the name, but the event is in May. Don't get confused. May 30th from 4 to 10 p.m. There will be DJ sets, a health fair and marketplace, a ballroom-inspired dance battle, cash bar, food trucks, and more. Plus, a performance by Tony Award winner Alex Newell, a.k.a. Unique, from Glee. This is all thanks to True Tea Pittsburgh and so many folks doing the good work out here in the community. So do not miss out. Learn more at TooHotForJuly.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Speaking of teenagers, I want to talk about teenagers downtown. Morgan, you're downtown a lot. Do you feel like you've been noticing it get a little bit more chaotic down there recently? It makes me feel like an old geezer if I sit here (laughs) and complain about the teenagers downtown. But like... Oh, man, it's it's not that I want to say it's a problem. But what I do notice is that um, it just really seems like even in the morning Mm -hmm. and, you know, after school that like there's they're not in in any programs or like they don't really have anywhere to go. So they're hanging out, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that kids would. But um, yeah, I mean, well, you're not the only person who's who's noticed that. Business owners have been talking about it as well. Apparently, you know, kids and teenagers are heading down there after school. And, you know, that's been of some concern to the business owners downtown. Mm -hmm. Is there a sense why maybe more teenagers are hanging out downtown than there used to be in the past? Yeah, according to reporting that WSA has done, downtown has sort of become like a quote unquote happening place to hang out, like the mall in like the 80s or 90s or whatever. Oh, man. (laughs) 
teens like are regularly going to specifically the McDonald's by Market Square and then hanging out in the Market Square after school. Since downtown is easy to get to on public transit and kids are already relying on PRT since we have a school bus driver shortage, Hmm. Pittsburgh Public Schools is providing them with bus passes to get to school. So going downtown on the bus, you know, before heading home is like easy for them. And um, since a a lot lot of buses buses pass through downtown, like downtown is where, you know, you transfer to a lot of lines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so they just like, go downtown and and hang out and then they transfer to go back home. Um, I should mention that like it's not just downtown. Uh, Businesses in Squirrel Hill, you know, by Alderdice have reported similar issues with a lot of teenage foot traffic after schools. I love my teens. I love my youth. (laughs) But like, you know, yeah, it is. It can be they're You know, they're a rowdy bunch. They've got a lot of energy. And on top of uh, having a lot of energy, they also don't have like a lot of money. So yeah, (laughs) what what issues have um, businesses been facing? Like, what, what do they mean when they say they're having issues with the kids? Yeah, I mean, so there's a variety of things that business owners told WSA, like from like just like nuisance things to like actual violence. The owner of Simple Greek in Market Square said that she had like teens trying to steal from the tip drawer, get food without paying. She said that once when she confronted a girl about, you know, stealing soda from the soda fountain, the girl threw soda in her face. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Other businesses have also like talked about tip stealing as like a general issue. One of the managers at CityWorks uh, told WSA that some teenagers pepper sprayed a bartender who was stopping them from stealing tips. So, you know, it's actually progressed to real violence. Wow. There's also just like the issue of like drama and fighting and that's happening like outside and around these businesses, you know, beyond the feeling of like being unsafe due to like the fights and the teenagers um, pepper spraying bartenders. Business owners have also reported some property damage as a result of like these scuffles that are happening. Uh, businesses have had like windows and doors broken. That happened at that um, hair salon, Cardinals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Downtown. A uh, kid got the window. pushed. Uh, into the window during a fight and the window broke and they had to board it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the businesses who talked to WSA said that, you know, some of these damages have been paid back by parents. uh, So, you know, it hasn't caused significant direct harm to the businesses. But the fear of coming downtown for both customers and workers has had a real effect on their business. I mean, so how widespread is this? Like, is there actual data to back up what these business owners are saying? Or are these, you know, a couple a couple of one-offs that are very unfortunate? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, what's the data on this? Yeah, so downtown has always experienced like the highest level of crime, according to police data. And this is part of that trend. Uh, data shows that, you know, property and violence offenses have gone up to pre-pandemic levels. So it may feel like a lot to us because we haven't experienced it for like a minute because we've all been in lockdown, but it isn't like record setting levels. Mm -hmm. And there is some evidence that it is young adults really contributing to this, at least for like lower level crimes, such as shoplifting, harassment, fighting. Last year through October, police issued double the average citations for people 19 and younger, like uh, doubled the average from the past three years leading up to the pandemic. Mm. However, like arrests for young people have fallen by 20% over that same period. Mm-hmm. WSA is is doing some really great reporting on on this area and looking into kind of what teens um, are saying or what, what they want. Um, but it seems like there's just a real appetite from teenagers to really just be out in public. You know, they were mm-hmm. they were in their houses for three years. And it seems like this is kind of a rebound of, you know, after being stuffed up in their houses, now they're like out and exploring the city and and being rowdy. 
Yeah. I mean, are there measures to kind of create more spaces where people can go? Because I, I totally get that. Like you've been cooped up. You've been locked down. You want to be able to be out in the city now, be out with your friends. Mm-hmm. What does the landscape look like in terms of places where young people can go to hang out, especially downtown if they're, you know, waiting for their next bus? Yeah. I mean, the teens that WSA spoke to said that they're really interested in having these like spaces. Like some have said that they want more indoor spaces. Some are more interested in like free recreational options. There is like a move to kind of do something about this. Business owners are upset. City officials are um, like trying to think of measures. I mean, we spoke about one of the measures that was proposed to stop this last week on Friday News Roundup, which Mm -hmm. was the proposed enforced youth curfew. Um, which is, you know, since been put on the wayside, on the back burner, because it got a lot of pushback. Now the move is to kind of create resource centers. City Council proposed that on Wednesday, um, which would provide like social services for kids and families and neighborhoods with higher rates of youth violence. So that would create like a space for them to go. And this doesn't have the same um, pushback as as the enforced curfew, right? No, no. I mean, Mayor Ed Ganey actually came out against the enforced youth curfew, um, but he's in favor of the uh, resource centers. Well, speaking of Ed Ganey and measures that he supports, we touched on this in yesterday's newscast, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about it today. Um, Mayor Ganey is taking steps to maybe get some of the city's biggest nonprofits to pay property taxes. Hmm. This is something we've talked about before. We'll put a link in our show notes to our interview with Emma Foltz from Public Source about all this, but there's been a push for a while now to get Pittsburgh's five big eds and meds. Mm-hmm. So Pitt, Duquesne, UPMC, Allegheny Health Network, CMU, uh, to pay their fair share to the city. If you think they're kind of not already contributing their fair share in other ways with other services they provide. This was a big part of Ganey's campaign for mayor. And he mm-hmm. was especially focused on UPMC, which, as public source puts it, has the most property and the most money at stake. And so this Tuesday, Ganey signed an executive order that seems like a way to try to make good on his campaign promise to get some of these big nonprofits to pay up. Yeah. So I wasn't here when you guys did that uh, interview <laughs> with Emma Foltz. And I think she's an incredible reporter. Um, but before we get on to kind of the executive order, can you just remind me and, you know, the other listeners who may not have listened to that episode, uh, why it matters whether or not these nonprofits pay property taxes? I mean, I get the frustration. I mean, I've got to pay them. They should too. But like, what's the impact here? Yeah, so about 20% of land in Pittsburgh is privately owned but tax exempt. Um, And so that means that there's a lot of property that the city just isn't collecting taxes on. Uh, There was a joint report that came out from the city and county controllers in 2021, and it found that these five big eds and meds owned about $4.3 billion in property that's exempt from property taxes, just property taxes levied by the city alone. Wow. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, which is a lot. And mm-hmm. nearly two-thirds of those properties are within city limits. And, you know, Pittsburgh's not in, like, amazing financial shape. There's Don't been... I know it. They keep <laughs> giving me these parking tickets. That's how they're making up for all of yeah. this. 
yeah, like, why is this falling to you and your parking tickets instead of <laughs> <laughs> these giant institutions? Um, Morgan's saving the city. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I'm paying on this $4.3 billion property tax $40 at a time. Yeah, <laughs> you, you alone are going to keep the city afloat for the next several years. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously not saying anything No, people don't know, but, um, you know, there's been some federal COVID relief funds that have helped, you know, get the city through the last few years, but those are going to run out. So this would be a sustainable source of revenue for the city if, mm-hmm. you know, some of these nonprofits had to pay property taxes. And Emma had pointed out in her reporting and in our conversation that these institutions often end up using city services that they're not paying for. So she gave an example of this dorm on the Pitt campus that had placed a ton of calls to 911 needing police services, EMS, um, firefighters, and for everything from like real medical emergencies to one example she gave was, you know, typical dorm behavior. A kid like burned their mac and cheese in that warm <laughs> microwave and, and the fire department had to come out. Um, but so, you know, every time, you know, EMS comes to the dorm, that's like a city service that Pittsburgh is providing that Pitt in this example isn't paying for. And mm. so that's, you know, where some of this argument is coming from is if, if you're going to use these services, you need to contribute to them. So then what is the uh, executive order? Yeah, so the Ganey administration is launching a citywide review of tax-exempt properties to determine whether they're owned by an institution of purely public charity. That's the language in in the state law that allows for these tax exemptions. So basically, all of these properties would need to pass a test to see if they meet uh, five criteria that under the state law allow them to qualify as a purely public charity. Purely public charity sounds like a very high bar to meet. What are the criteria? Yeah, so uh, it it means that the group has to advance a charitable purpose, um, donate a substantial portion of its services, benefit a class of people that are legitimate subjects of charity, relieve the government of, you know, a burden that it would have to provide otherwise, um, and operate without seeking a profit. If they don't pass that test, will they lose their nonprofit status? No. So the city solicitor said that, you know, even if the city is able to successfully challenge um, a tax exemption, donations to the nonprofit would still be deductible. It would still have that nonprofit status. It would just have to start paying these property taxes. So is just the big five, you know, the universities and, and the healthcare giants, is it just those groups that are getting reviewed? No. um, Ganey's spokesperson said this is about every charity in the city. It's not just limited to the big five, um, but houses of worship, places like churches and synagogues Mm. won't be getting reviewed. This doesn't really Mm. apply to religious institutions. Um, But the thing is, even though Ganey hasn't said it explicitly, it does feel like the biggest target here is UPMC. That's really who he talked about during his campaign. He said that the region's most profitable corporation should pay taxes like anyone else. And, you know, I mentioned it has kind of the most property. According to public source, UPMC owns a quarter of the city's privately owned tax exempt property that's worth one point seven billion dollars. And if it could get taxed, then um, the city would get almost like 14 million dollars a year in taxes from UPMC. Um, About 35 million would go to city schools and 9 million would go to the county. Yeah, UPMC has so much property. I know that Darwin Luba, who's the auditor for O'Hara Township, is actually like going around and cataloging parking lots specifically that Mm. UPMC owns to see if they should be taxed. Um, But yeah, I don't know. What are 
how is the city going to review all of these properties? Are they going to review them each like one by one separately? Yeah, they're uh, reviewing everything parcel by parcel. And it's interesting that you bring up parking lots because I actually heard a WESA reporter, Kylie Kaczynski, on the confluence. And she used parking lots as an example of, you know, obviously institutions like UPMC have a ton of them. And in her words, these parking lots could be determined to be unrelated to the mission of a nonprofit. Mm. Kevin Gavin, the host of the confluence in that same conversation, brought up the examples of like Pitt and Duquesne have these basketball stadiums that generate profit. And so um, it's really going to be a case by case basis, whether these, you know, properties meet the the charitable criteria. Is is this realistic, though, because UPMC has somehow <laughs> come up with the receipts that they are, in fact, 100 percent a charitable organization? <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't know. What what are the odds of some of these nonprofits failing the test and how soon would the city be able to start collecting money if they did? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I don't really know about the odds that they'd fail, but the city solicitor, you know, acknowledged that this review of these properties will likely take years and nonprofits are going to be able to challenge the results. So it'll be a while before we know if anyone does lose their tax exempt status um, and if the city is going to start getting money from some of these entities. Was Ganey the first mayor to try and do something like this? Maybe it's just because I'm young, but I this is the first time that I'm like hearing of this. Oh, Elizabeth, this fight predates your your, your time. Um, yeah, Lou Gravenstahl, well, I guess you were born earlier than 2013, but uh, Lou Gravenstahl back in 2013 when he was mayor sued UPMC trying to challenge its charitable status. And so then after him, Bill Peduto dropped the lawsuit and formed the One Pittsburgh program, which tried to get nonprofits to make voluntary contributions. Emma talked about how, like, you know, both in Pittsburgh and in other places that are other cities that are dealing with this, there's, you know, the carrot or the stick. And so we've seen both the stick, the lawsuit, the carrot, the like voluntarily make contributions to this fund. Um, when Ganey took office, he pulled out of the one Pittsburgh fund. Everyone was kind of waiting to see what he'd do and if he'd try to fulfill his campaign promise. And so now we're seeing the next step in this ongoing saga. Yeah. Volunteer to give over millions of dollars. Um <laughs> How have the nonprofits responded? Yeah. So, I mean, some of these big nonprofits have argued for a while now that they bring a lot of benefit to Pittsburgh. They create jobs. They provide education, at least kind of in the public statements. They seem to be reinforcing that they feel like they're, you know, already contributing to the city and will and will cooperate with the mayor uh, going forward. Yeah. Is there a way for the public to weigh in? I, I know a lot of people who would like to say some things about this. <laughs> Yeah, uh, th there is, in fact. Um, so the city does plan to start review it by reviewing nonprofits that have the largest properties. But they're also calling on us, like if any of you uh, know of a public charity that you think is violating one or more of those requirements laid out in state law for something to be, a, you know, have this charitable status, you can report it to the city. They set up an email account, report at pittsburghpa.gov that you can write in. Um, Ganey's asked, like, if you go somewhere and it's a charity, but you're paying market rate for the service you get there, you should let the city know. Um, and then he also said the city should know if a charity is, in his words, just a front for someone to pay themselves a higher salary and deduct the cost of their cars. Yeah, I don't know. It seems a little... A little weird to want to tell on, you know, a charity. Even, <laughs> I want to leave it up to uh, uh, the universe that, you know, maybe karma will get that person and, and it's not from my hot tip. 
That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Our team this week includes Meg Dalton, Elizabeth Kama, Mallory Falk, Francesca DeBecco, and me, Morgan Moody. Music's by Benji. And we'll be back on Monday with more news from around the city. So we'll see you then. But my complaints aren't anonymous. (laughs) No, you say it to his face.